This is a case from the Hegegan Roku, Hoshan's Knowing How to Beat the Drum. Main case. Hoshan imparted some words saying, cultivating study is called learning. Cutting off study is called nearness. Going beyond these two is to be considered real going beyond. Ramon came forward and asked, what is real going beyond? And Shan said, knowing how to beat the drum. Again he asked, what is the real truth? And Shan said, knowing how to beat the drum. And then he asked again, mind is Buddha. I'm not asking about that. What is not mind and not Buddha? And Shan said, knowing how to beat the drum. And then he asked again, when a transcendent person comes, how do you receive him? And Shan said, knowing how to beat the drum. The verse. One holds rocks, a second moves earth. To shoot the bolt requires a ten-ton crossbow. The old master of elephant bone cliff, Jefeng, rolled bolts. How could this equal Ho Shan's knowing how to beat the drum? I report for you to know, do not be careless. The sweet is sweet. The bitter is bitter. So next Sunday, we're entering into our fall angle. And the theme we have chosen to work with, or we are going to work with, is right effort. And, and the point we do, we, we choose a theme every angle, as you know. The point of, of choosing a theme is to raise a specific aspect or aspects of practice and then delve into these aspects so we can come out of an angle period with a deeper understanding of how to work with these aspects. Not just during angle, but going forward. It's kind of like what we do with book study. We talk about working with, on a book or working with a book as a way to initiate something or dive deep into something and then learn how to keep it alive. Learn how to use that as we go through day by day, as we go through practice, as we deepen our practice. So it's not so much as we've done this one, check, let's move on to the next one. You remember last year we worked with humility, which obviously is a huge aspect of practice, right? And it keeps us busy for the rest of our lives. Unless, of course, you think you have mastered it. Then you can check it off. I haven't yet, so. And the idea of, of dedicating uh, this angle to, to right effort is actually brewing in me for a while. 
for months. And it became clarified one day when I was uh, in the middle of Aikido class. I was training, not teaching. I often draw uh, examples from Aikido practice since I see it as a way to, to deepen my understanding of life. But I want to add to that that the Aikido references I bring up are not only for those who practice Aikido. They are relevant to everybody and they can be seen as a way to, to deepen our practice even if we know nothing about Aikido. So don't, if you don't practice, don't feel like you are left out or not knowing what is being brought up. So in Aikido, Aikido was founded as a way to, to merge with the universal life force and to recognize unity through movement, through embodiment. And, and Zen training actually aims at the same unity. Of course, there's, there's no... There are no different kinds of unity. Unity is unity. One is one. And in Zen, in Zen practice or training aims at training the, the practitioner to realize oneness and then live in alignment with it or embody and actualize it. So anyway, I was in the middle of class I was practicing and I was working with somebody and I, we have a partner we work with and I was focusing on learning to move with more ease. This is something that past couple of years have been, has been uh, one of the main focuses of my practice to learn how to move with using the least amount of energy. And it's a, it's a big it's not so simple because it requires uh, honest examination. It also requires a deep exploration of why we move the way we move, why I move this way, and how can I change that? You know, after years of practice, whether it's Zen, Aikido, life, we develop habits. So it requires looking at that, looking at habits, and it requires working on changing what we habitually do. Often we don't even know what are these habits. So when I was talking to the person I was working with that this is really one of the most important aspects of Aikido training is to learn to move using minimal amount of effort, just the right amount of effort. And from the right place, to move for the sake of moving and not for any other reason. To flow for the sake of flowing, not for the sake of the one who is flowing. Which means to over and over again lose ourselves to the movement. And it's a challenge because it's a challenge because we don't want to lose ourselves to the move. We don't want to lose ourselves at all. The other way around. We want to find ourselves and hold on to that. 
So, so in Aikido, we, we work on it in order to flow better, in order to apply techniques in a more effortless way. Which means not too much, not too little. But when it comes to Zen practice, Zen training, what we aim for, what, we, what we're trying to work on is actually living like that through all aspects of our lives. To live in a way that is, what, to, to think, to speak, to act in ways that are not using too much or too little energy. So I was at that class, and then when I got out of class, I went back to the garage to get my car, and I saw a guy who, uh, I, I know the, another attendant from, he, he does a different shift, so that's not the usual attendant, so I started to talk to him, and I asked him, well, you know, what are you doing here today? Usually you don't do that shift. He said, yeah, they called me, and the other guy called in sick, and I had to stay and do double shift. And he was very cheerful. When he was talking about it, I said, well, you have a really good attitude about it. You don't seem to be burdened by that or to complain about it. So then he looked at me, he said, when my friends complain to me about things and whine and upset about stuff, he said, I look at them and I ask them, where do you find the time to do this? Where do you find the energy to complain and to talk about it? He said, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. And somehow... Really nice guy, not practicing, but practicing. Somehow he knew that complaining or creating something about it or reacting to it would add extra baggage that he could do without. Somehow he knows that, for he knew that. And he decided to just roll along, to move on, to change with the change. Well, it's a simple example. So that conversation kind of sealed it for me. I thought, okay, we're going to work on applying right effort. Applying right effort. And another thing to add to that, it's not just to apply right effort so we can become more efficient or more proficient in life and become more conducive or learn to use things in a more conducive way. This is different. This is much deeper than that. This, is, this has to do with looking at how we operate, why we operate the way we operate. So the pr purpose of that is to, to discover or to understand uh, how the self operates. And then to work on releasing its tight grip over our lives. In everything. with every breath, with every thought, with every movement, 
Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I saying what I'm saying? Why am I moving the way I'm moving? You know, you look at people's posture, but the way they move. If you understand a little bit about anatomy and movement, it's easy to see, and, and some of you understand anatomy and physiology, and some of you teach yoga. Right? And when we, when we study movement, we actually recognize that there's a lot of wasted energy when we're not in alignment. Now, alignment is not just physical, right? Alignment is alignment. Being upright, upright in everything. So physically, there's a lot easy to see wasting energy, mentally, psychologically, spiritually. How and where and when do we waste energy? So right effort, you know what we call right effort refers to exerting energy in a way that is clean, clear, not vested in what happened before or what we think will happen later. Right? And, and within that, the experiences we may have acquired in the past are included, as well as the, a map, maybe a mapped out plan for an outcome or direction. Right? Directions are, direction our actions are taking. We have to have that. This is how we function. So what was and what we think will be is included. It's a given. But what doesn't have to be there is an owner that is attached to success or failure of the outcome. That's the extra. That is what's wasting energy or stealing energy. Or that's what makes the difference between right effort or wasting energy. There's something in us that is attached to using the activity or the outcome to protect itself. Right effort is selfless, ownerless. It's kind of doing without a doer. And it flows out of right view. It actually means seeing reality as it is and operating from alignment with the source. What is the source? How about alignment with impermanence? Maybe a little bit more simple to, not that, not that that's simple, but simple to at least examine or look at. Alignment with change. Alignment with nothing has a fixed position. Alignment with the center, with the hala. Movement from the center, not from the head. 
How about speaking from the center? What kind of words would this be? How about thinking from the center? What kind of thoughts would that produce? Movement that is, well, thoughts, words, actions that are in alignment with something far deeper and greater than what comes and goes, than what arises and vanishes. Now, what we may call wrong effort is actually misalignment or misaligned effort that is fueled by an idea of gain and loss. And because it is fueled by such ideas, it creates dissatisfaction, restlessness, futurizing, looking back, lamenting. It separates. It comes from a place of separation, and it separates further, for it keeps the separation alive. And this would be referring to a state of operating from a false sense of self, and then putting a load of unrealistic expectations on what we do, or on the doing. <clears throat> of course, it's unrealistic because Nothing can protect, defend, or enhance what's not there to begin with. It doesn't matter how hard we try. It's not going to work. It's futile. So exerting right effort creates optimal conditions for flow. And it leaves no traces behind. On the other hand, exerting misaligned effort is exhausting. It creates stagnation. And then it creates extra baggage that we carry around with us wherever we go. We have to explain that baggage. We have to defend it. We have to feed it. We have to nurture it. Love it. Or hate it. It really doesn't matter. I hate my baggage is as Bad as I love my, my baggage. It doesn't matter. We have a relationship with something. Remember I mentioned in the Ango email, if you are not sure what you have to, what you want to work on, what you need to work on, just look at what's weighing you down. That should be your focus for the Ango. What is weighing you down in life right now, today, these days? If we're honest about it, it won't take long to see what we need to work on. So right effort, as you know, appears on the Eightfold Path under mental development, along with right mindfulness and right concentration. Foundation of Buddhism. One of the first teachings of the Buddha. And then in one of his last teachings, actually the Buddha made a point of emphasizing the vital importance of effort in practice. And then he referred to it as exerting meticulous effort. Meticulous effort. And Dogen explained this 
using these words, exerting oneself meticulously and unceasingly in various beneficial practices is called meticulous effort. He said, be precise, not careless. Go forward, do not regress. And Mazumi Roshi commented on that saying, in the original Japanese, meticulous effort is shoji. Sho is literally pure. Or in Dogen Zenchi's words, being pure, it is not mixed. Jin is progress. Or as Dogen Zenchi expresses it, going forward. It does not regress. And Mazumi says, this is right effort. Just constantly keep on going. And to keep on going means to not look back, to not leave any residual energy behind because it weighs us down to keep flowing to keep moving it also means to be in alignment with what is because what is is always moving what is is always changing so when we don't do that when we don't keep going or to not keep going is to create an illusion and then to hold on to the illusion. Because even when we are in delusion, we still go on. We still disintegrate. We still fall apart. We still are one with change. The difference is that we don't obey it, which means we don't live by that, which means we exert a lot of extra effort and our practice is to shed light on that to see where and how and when we do that so we can take responsibility and work on it so shoji moving from the purity of being or taking action from being rooted in the true person of no rank. The true person of no before and no after. The true person of no accumulation. No quantification. The true person of no person. As Master Linji referred to it, the true person of no rank. It's a very important point because it's shifting the attention to the inherent purity that is not in question. And then it's about allowing this purity to function freely. It's actually saying you are sufficient and complete as is. Now go ahead and put it into action. Don't question completeness and sufficiency. Question the way you are putting it into practice. Question the way you are working with it. Question whether or not you trust it. But don't question your purity. Buddhism begins from there. Buddhism does not question you. You question yourself. You question your own completeness. We do. And that's where it begins. 
That's why it's not about being more efficient, more productive, although those are byproducts, maybe beneficial byproducts, side effects, not the goal. Right? So, so the shift of attention here is from the what to the how. So we need to study how we function and examine the extra effort we exert when we move from a belief that we are incomplete and from a trust that we are, in fact, complete, inherently complete, and inherently sufficient. As we are, to move from understanding what it means this Dharma is equal, no high, no low. And so we turn to the practice so we can learn how to exert just the right amount of effort and lead a life without creating complications, without creating extra layers. We turn to the practice so we can learn how to beat the drum. How do we learn this incredible skill? How do we acquire that skill if we're already complete and there is nothing to acquire? Right? Because when we think about learning, we think about acquiring something, about adding something that is missing. That's not what the teachings say. It's what we read. Or it's what we do with the teachings. So in this koan, Master Hoshan quoted a few lines from an old text titled Jewel Treasure Treatise. It says, Cultivating study is called nearness. Cutting off study is called near, sorry. Cultivating study is called learning. Cutting off the study is called nearness. Going beyond these two is considered really going beyond. In the commentary it says, to study until there is nothing to study is called cutting off study. Thus it is said, shallow learning, deep enlightenment, deep learning, no enlightenment. Shallow learning, deep enlightenment. This is called cutting off study. Then it says, when one's cultivation of studies is completed and exhausted, she is called a non-doing free person of the path, beyond study. And exhausted here is a very important word. When it is exhausted, it's an important point because there's no way to jump over that. There's no, there's no way to practice without creating complications, without creating suffering. So we have to just live with that. 
And it says, when she reaches the point of cutting off study, only then, for the first time, she is near to the path. And then it says, when a person manages to go beyond these two aspects of study, this is called real going beyond. And so we first enter the path of Zen, and even maybe years later, we work very hard on trying to get it. And we, we hold on to the assumption that the more we sit, the more we read, study, maybe listen to talks, the quicker it will happen. Right? And on one level, this is this only results in exerting a lot of unnecessary efforts. Because it does. Because we do a lot of too much. But on another level, we are conditioned to think in this linear way. We come to the practice with thinking this way. So it's only natural, it's only logical that that's what we will do with the practice too. So we can't help it. Which means we have to try hard, fall on our face, get up, try harder, thinking, well, I must be not trying hard enough. So I'll try harder. Then we fall on our face again. And then at some point we realize it's not about a bigger hammer school. It's not that kind of a school. Right? Which brings us back to what kind of efforts are we exerting? We can't expect to operate from the same place and then create something new or recognize or realize something new. We come back to the same recognition. The same recognition of I am not, I always knew I am not enough. Now I have the practice to tell me the same thing. I always knew that I'm worthless. So I'm never going to get it. So the question is, what kind of efforts are we applying? Or how are we practicing? And what's most important in this is to keep cultivating the great determination. Every time we fall down, we have to get up. It doesn't matter why, it doesn't matter how frustrated we are, it doesn't matter how defeated we may feel. It doesn't matter because if we can, we can get up, it's not if, we can get up. And when we get up, then we have to leave it all behind. We have to leave no trace. Move on. Again, brand new. For the first time, we take a new step. For the first time, the great determination. You may remember Dogen's words. He said, it is not measured by deep and shallow, only by the level of commitment and determination to the practice. That's it. Only by the level of commitment and determination to practice. We measure by deep and shallow. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how far you think you've gone. 
It doesn't matter how far you think you still have to go. None of it matters. Because there's no owner. Ever. Although there is somebody that wants to get something or yeah, wants to benefit from the practice. So we can easily go from being attached to one thing which we think is not good and then being attached to another thing which is, we think is better. Hence the practice. I'm a practitioner. I've realized something. So it doesn't matter where you think you are on the path or how deep you think you have gone. All that matters is that you stay on the path and keep going. But what is the path? Question that keeps coming up. What is it that I'm staying on? If I can't measure it, if I can't quantify it, if I can't see it, if I can't think of it, then what is it? And Jaju asked the same exact question. He asked his teacher Nansen. Nansen said, all that never mind is the path. Nansen said, should I direct myself towards it? And Nansen replied, if you direct yourself towards it, you will be moving away from it. So in a way he was saying that if you try very hard, you're applying the wrong kind of effort and you will be moving away from what you're trying to, or where you're trying to arrive. What do we do with that? That's the only way we know how to function. Right? In a linear way, that's what we know how to do. I will do one, two, three, four, and I will arrive at five. You'll do one, you'll arrive at one. And again and again. The harder you practice or no practice, still, this is it. Still, this is it. So directing ourselves towards what we think the path is only results in exerting extra efforts and further entanglements. The good thing about that is you can see that even Zhaozhu had to go through the same confusion. The same entanglements we all go through. Same linear way of thinking. Before he was able to cut off the study. Before he was able to realize shallow learning, deep enlightenment. Deep learning, no enlightenment. Of course, this statement doesn't echo with our way of thinking, with our logical way of thinking. It's also not what we want to hear. So it takes time to, to, to let go of the logical ground we think we are standing on. It takes time. It doesn't have to take time, but it takes time. But that's okay. That's what we're doing.
Then it says, when one's cultivation of studies is completed and exhausted, she is called a non-doing, free person of the path beyond study. When she reaches the point of cutting off study, only then, for the first time, she is near the path. So how do we exhaust the study? We try to get there by means of logic, by explanations, by thinking. We try. We go through many moments of disappointments, despair. And endure periods of thinking we are never going to get it. Yet, we get up, we move on. It's part of the program. And then at some point, some point along the way, we actually realize that these kinds of efforts don't work. And then it says, for the first time, we are nearest to the path. When we realize that these efforts actually just don't work. But to realize that, we have to exhaust ourselves. And to exhaust ourselves, we have to get up, fall down. Get up, fall down. Again and again and again. It's actually common to fall down again and again and then at some point say the hell with it. I'll go try something else. But we go somewhere else, we encounter the same thing. So at some point, hopefully, we, we break through. So it says for the first time, this is nearest to the path. But even then, you don't pitch a tent. You don't build a house. You acknowledge, move on. You even that, even that has to be dropped off. The cutting off study has to be cut off. Hakuin said that that is, this point is neither rejecting birth and death, nor seeking nirvana. So neither rejecting nor looking for something else. Then, when a person manages to go beyond these two aspects of study, this is called really go real going beyond. And then after Hoshan finished quoting these words, the monk who was there asked four questions. What is real going beyond? Knowing how to beat the drum. What is the real truth? Knowing how to beat the drum. Mind is Buddha, I'm not asking about that. What is not mind, not Buddha? Knowing how to beat the drum. Then, when a transcendent person comes, how do you receive him or her? Knowing how to beat the drum. That's all he said. Knowing how to beat the drum. What do we hear? How do we hear knowing how to? How do we make sense of 
knowing how to do something, or knowing how. You know, to truly know how to beat the drum is not the same as acquiring a skill or experience, having experience in something. That's how we think about it. Or we may think, well, he's been beating the drums for years, for decades. He's great at it. I'm not even close to knowing how to do that. Oh, how can I be expected to do that without acquiring experience? But is that what he's saying? Is that what he's pointing at? And if we think this way, then we have to look at what the Buddha said. He said, it is good at the beginning, it is good in the middle, and it is good at the end. So how do we deal with that? How does that statement align with the way we think? With the way we think of, of reality? With the way we think about ourselves? Other people? How does that align with our linear way of thinking, of being, of existing, of functioning? Do we trust it to be so? Or do we put our faith in an idea of incompleteness and then create an imaginary path with an eventual completeness? Then we call it Zen. We may call it Zen. This is the path that's going to lead me from complete, incompleteness to completeness. I will be adequate then. Or I will feel adequate then when I graduate. Well, I'm here to say it never happens. This will never happen. Because it can't happen. Because it is good at the beginning, it is good in the middle, and it is good at the end. How can it happen if it's not happening? It cannot happen later, but it is happening now. So we have to step out of a linear way of thinking, or fragmented way of thinking, into a recognition or trust. It does take great trust, great faith, as you know. We have to step out of that and into that so we can begin or at least examine our efforts from there. Or examine the extra efforts. But we, all, we all have been observing our minds for a while, right? You are not new to the practice. And you know how the mind works. You know how it constantly keeps itself busy weaving storyline after storyline or the same storyline, just beefing it up keeping it alive. And it consists of fragments of the past, future mental projections, assumptions about the present. And all of that creates an inner narrative or chatter. All of this chatter creates this inner narrative that we think is 
explaining or describing what we are, who we are. And we believe that to be true. We trust that and we move from that and we apply efforts from that belief. I mean, this is where we find the idea of incompleteness and insufficiency. Actually, this is where we perpetuate the idea of incompleteness and insufficiency. Also, this is where we find the idea of completeness and enlightenment. It's all there. There is the incompleteness, or there is the delusion, my state of being, and the nirvana, or the enlightenment, which is a future state of being, and then here is the path that will lead me there. Here's the map. But there is no map. And the path leads nowhere. Are we willing to even consider that the path leads nowhere? That's a scary thought, isn't it? And then think about this mental image that we create. Think about how tightly it is interlaced into our thoughts, into our speech, interactions, and how much energy it takes to maintain it. Knowing how to beat the drum. That's all he said. That's his entire teaching. And that's all, what, it's all we need to hear. Knowing how, knowing how to be. Knowing how to stand, how to step, how to stop, how to drink water, how to blink the eyes. Knowing how to be. How much do we know about being? Being is not linear. Being is not found later. Being is not found. It's not lost. It's not arising, it's not vanishing. It's not accumulated. It's not a mental projection. It just is. So in this angle, I ended up uh, writing a lot for this talk. I'm going to have to maybe use it for the next talk. But back to this angle, we are entering next Sunday. And we have to really take it to heart. We really have to forget all experiences of past angles. Forget them completely. And enter fresh, new, for the first time. Without accumulating anything from the past. 
and without an expectation to accumulate anything from this one. Just step by step, use it to deepen. It's a tool, as, as Dogen said, it's one of the tools of our practice. We have to know how to use it well, so we don't waste it, we don't squander the tool. So in this angle, what I would ask all of us to do is to push the envelope. Or maybe to drop the expectation that we will penetrate through or break through without being uncomfortable, without pushing the envelope, without doing what we think, well, I can't do that, that's too much for me. I have a lot going on in my life. I cannot go to this other guy, that's a sheen come to sitting so often. Can't do that. Too much. Is it too much? Or, or do we think that it's too much and that is creating too much? Or that's creating another layer to deal with, to cut through? You know, when we talk about discipline, there's a way to, to work with discipline that does not require much effort. There is always effort, but when there's no extra, then it's easier to go through challenges, to apply disciplined practice, or to be disciplined about the practice, to be disciplined about life. One of the things I wrote in the email, in the Anger email, is that we have to shatter the idea of duality between what we call Zen practice and what we call everyday life. And if we think that these two are dual, then we are lost in creating an image of a Zen practitioner and creating a separation between that and what we call everyday life. But when we understand that our practice is everyday life, what we call Zen is everyday life, then when we come to Sishin or Zazenkai or we show up more often, we know that we do it because we care about our lives. Because we care about everybody and everything. That's why we practice. So I can, so I can know how to express that caring deeply. Or better. Or more efficiently, right? To express that caring more efficiently. Not to be more efficient in the result or the action. So, commit to showing up more often. For Sangha sits, commit to sitting longer. Commit to an extra seat, maybe. And do that without adding layers, without, oh, this again, anger again, I can't wait for it to end. Who's saying that? Also, in relation to, to Dokusan, and I've said it before, you know, we come to Dokusan, we have to be clear. Dokusan is a tool of practice, upaya. We come to Dokusan not to chit-chat. We come to Dokusan to express, to learn to express using the minimum amount of words, cutting to the chase, going directly to it. Not to justify, not to want to pass a coin. That's not the purpose of Dogusan. 
Dokusan is a part of our training to learn how to be, to learn how to exert the right effort in speech and in expression. I don't want to hear about anything else. Just show what you think or what you feel the Quran is about. Show it. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, great. Why? Because it's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, it's good in the end. That's why. So go back to the cushion, work on it again. Or go back to the cushion, work on the next one. Doesn't matter. Or it shouldn't matter. So let's learn how to use that correctly. Let's learn to not waste energy and effort in the way we use Dokusan. And the other thing is, I would encourage all of us to take a little time, segments of time in our day, to actually do nothing. Zazen doesn't count. Because Zazen is structured. There is a beginning and an end to that. But just take time to do nothing and see where your mind goes. See where your hands reach. I'm sitting down. Maybe I should just see what's going on in the world. Browse the internet. Catch up on emails. Whatever. Or watch TV or whatever. Or maybe open the fridge. Right? That's, that's an option. Lots of displacement activities. Look at what's going on. Look at where your mind goes when you don't give it something to do. Examine it. Get comfortable with the discomfort of wanting to do something and then not giving that wanting anything. Not feeding that wanting. How do we work with that? And then learn to move from that. Because this is where right effort comes from. Right effort is not about the doing. It, it is the being that is expressing itself in the doing. If we're lost in doing, guaranteed to waste effort, to apply extra effort. The other thing is stay fully engaged. Fully engaged with what you're doing, with the person you're speaking with, or with the action. Fully engaged, although there are sounds, external, internal, mental, thoughts, whatever is going on, let it, let it fade into the background and choose wholeheartedly to be engaged with what the moment brings. Fully engaged, no judgment. Total appreciation. Regarding, in regards of, total, total appreciation, complete disregard to whether or not you like or dislike it. It doesn't matter. Well, it's irrelevant. And practice with ease, even when you're tired, even when you're hungry. 
Practice here at ease and practice your life at ease. Even when we deal with challenges. We'll ask the question, can I meet those challenges with ease? Can I meet those challenges from being rather than from doing? If I meet it from being, I meet it from a place of no entanglements. Yet there is the entanglement or the entanglements. So the last two lines, the, the, the verse, I'll finish with that, the verse is, first two lines are referring to stories about skillful means of different teachers. It's not so important. What's more important here is the last two lines, right? It says, it's asking us to not be careless. And then it says, the sweet is sweet, the bitter is bitter. And Hakuin commented on that saying, if you get that, if you get this, the sweetest sweet is bitter and bitter, there is something in it so scary that even when knowing how to, break, to beat the drum, you still get the shivers. Look at what he's referring to. Recognizing that sweet is sweet and bitter is bitter. That gives you the chills. If you understand, if you recognize the truth in it, that's deeply profound. And yet, ordinary mind is the way.